so much for your patience today with me, with everyone else, as it seems a little odd that we're just kind of me staying up here the whole time. But that's how it happens every summer uh, for the course of two weeks. And so this is what we're going to do this week and next week, um, because Adam and Adam McLeod are both out of town. But it offered me an opportunity to be able to speak to you about something that I've been wanting to speak about for a long time. Um, but at the same time, just because of God's sovereignty and where he placed it in the text, we're actually going to see that it comes right out of Genesis. Because right where we left off last week is where we're going to pick up this week. So if you could with me, let's flip to Genesis 12 and we'll start together. And like I said, hopefully we'll be done early, but there's no guarantee. Um, I did cut my notes in half, but that, uh, that doesn't mean that that means that it would be half the time. I just realized I was trying to cover way too much. I realized that if I had chosen a passage of Scripture to teach on, it would have been a lot easier to open up that passage potentially, study that text, and exegetically bring a message like Adam does most, uh, most Sundays, and it be central to that idea. But what I've tried to do today is, is something that's very, very difficult, and that's trying to teach on a topic. And a topic, when it's taught topically, is trying to understand what the Bible as a whole has to say on an individual topic. And so as you can imagine, as I was probably five minutes into my study, I realized this was going to be very, very challenging. But I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to do this today. Uh, We're going to get into Genesis 12 in just a second, but like Adam's been doing recently, he gives us a summary sentence. So notes are in the back if you need them. I don't know how helpful they'll be for you. But I do want to provide my summary sentence, which very much like Adam's is a very big run-on uh, sentence, but actually I just decided to get rid of the comma and I just made it two sentences. So this is going to take you a little bit to copy down, um, but you can go ahead and work on that as I try to just give us an introduction here about what we're talking about. The summary sentence says this, when God made male and female in his image, he created worshipers in his image for his glory and praise. From the first Adam to us today, God's people worship him as they naturally respond in faith to his revelation and reflect his worth to the world. Now, I know that's so much. You don't have to write all that. The idea, though, is that when God made male and female, he created worshipers in his image for his glory and praise. And this has been this case through all history. From the very first Adam to us today, God's people have always responded in proper worship to him as they naturally respond in faith, to something that he's revealed to them. And then their response of faith is what reflects his value or worth to the world. So I know there's a lot there, and hopefully we can unpack some of of this stuff today and it not be too, uh, too difficult. So what I want us to do now is to just kind of look at your notes. I think I put them at the top. There is a section there that says intro, where we have been in Genesis. And I just want to remind you, we've been in Genesis 1 through 11, so far, chapters 1 through 11, and now we're, we're moving forward into the call of Abraham in chapter 12. And a couple of weeks ago in our notes, Adam actually gave us a section in our notes that said, hey, here's a summary of where we've been, and let's try to take a step back and learn about some of the things that we've learned about God. So let's isolate these things so that we can take them with us as we journey forward. Some of these things that he added is number one. It says there, so far in Genesis, we've seen that there is a God who is real, and we can trust him. Number two, Adam said that God is personal and we can know him. Three, God is holy 
and we should fear him. For he says, God is love and we can be saved by him. And so I want to do something this morning and that's add to Adam's list. Um, not that he's forgotten anything because what I'm going to add actually is underlining all of the other things. But I felt like it was really appropriate for where we come, where we're coming from in Genesis 12. And that's number five. And that is God is worthy and we should praise him. So we see that God is love. He's personal. He's holy. And we should fear him. But I want to add that God is worthy and we should praise him. So the difference here, I know you might not say, you might use, I'm sorry, I'm, I know you might say that there, there's not a big difference between God is holy and we should fear him and God is worthy and we should praise him. But there is a small difference in the sense that what God is in his holiness is what he is set apart from the rest of man, fully separated from sin. It's something that he holds to himself that no one else has any place in. It's his holiness, and we should respond in reverence. But that holiness needs to be put on display. The world needs to see that. And God has created a world that is declaring his praise in everything. But he's also created us to reflect that glory and reflect that holiness in our lives to the world. And so that's why I want to say that he is worthy and we should praise him. So if you're with me in Genesis 12, I want to read here. I'm just going to pick up from verse 3. Verse 3, God tells Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abraham went. I want you to notice that little three words there. God has given him revelation. And the next thing that we see, it says, so Abraham went. And as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, Abraham or Abram was 75 years old. When he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. What's the next word? You see it? So, it's the same word that happened in verse 4. So, he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So, there's two instances here in this one little passage where God reveals himself to Abram who Joshua 24 already told us was a guy who worshipped other gods with his father. There was nothing specifically special about Abraham besides the fact that God chose in his grace and mercy to call him out of his idolatry. And when he does, he reveals something about himself. He reveals promises to trust in. And the very next thing that Abram does is what? Something, right? He either leaves, which is one response, or the next response, what does he do when he tells him, in verse 7, then the Lord appeared to him and said to your offspring, I'll give this land. What was the next thing he did there, physical act? He built an altar, right? So he builds an altar to the Lord. And later on down, it says he builds another altar when he gets to the other city. And there he began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what I want us to see this morning is that God's revelation to Abram is what prompted his obedience. Abram set up an altar and sacrificed to the Lord after receiving covenant promises. And this is actually going to be a pattern that we see in the rest of Abram's life. So when Adam goes and he takes us through the rest of Genesis, 
We're going to actually see this, and I want us to stop and think about it when he hits those verses. Abram builds altars. Abram brings sacrifices. Abram responds. And every single time that it's mentioned in Abram's life, it's always connected to God revealing something to him. And it's something that's not in the text that says that God ever said, okay, Abram, this is my promise to you. Now build me an altar. Okay, or these are the things that I'm revealing about myself. Now respond in worship. What Abram seems to do is a very natural, spontaneous response to what God does. God reveals something and Abram builds or Abram responds. There's not a mention of a sacrifice connected with this altar, but I'm inferring that there is a sacrifice here because of other places in the scripture that we've already covered in Genesis. Does anybody remember of another person that we've already studied who set up an altar and a sacrifice on it? Noah, right? Exactly. So Noah comes off the ark, and as Adam was teaching us there, he helped me see for the first time too. Remember that when Noah comes off the ark, a lot of our pictures show that the earth is already full and green and pretty, and Noah walks off is like, wow. But Adam said, what if he walked off the ark, though, and saw the great destruction that the, that the flood had left, the great mass destruction everywhere? Well, it says the first thing he does after he gets off the ark is what? He builds an altar. And he responds in worship to God. That's exactly what he did. By acknowledging how much he and his family needed God, and he proclaimed his grace in saving them. He walks off the ark and says, I've been saved. I'm the only human with, these, with my other family members. We're the only humans that have been saved from this great destruction. I'm building an altar, and I'm giving glory to God because he is the only one and the only reason that I'm still alive. But what about another sacrifice, even before Noah? Have we studied anything else? There's a pretty big one. Two people. Yes, Cain and Abel, right? So Cain and Abel brings sacrifices to the Lord. And also, you know, we talked about how in that lesson, Adam was teaching us that most people, you know, believe that Cain brought an unacceptable sacrifice, like he was not supposed to bring that fruit that he did and the vegetables that he did. He was supposed to bring a lamb. And obviously Abel got it right because he brought the correct sacrifice. But remember when we looked, as the laws given hundreds of years later, you could actually bring some of the things that Cain brought as sacrifices. So what did we learn was the differentiation between these two people? What made one acceptable and one not acceptable? Remember? The heart condition. And so there from the very beginning in Genesis, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, what is Yahweh God doing? He's creating the world and sin enters the world. And then he's on this mission to restore people back to him. And he's calling out Abram to create a nation for purposes that we'll talk about in just a second. But he's doing this for his glory. Cain and Abel did this by bringing sacrifices to him. But responding to him is seen in the very beginning of Genesis is always something that was about a heart attitude, not the actual duty. It's not something that we outwardly perform some ritual. It's about the heart attitude behind it. So the other thing here in the text, just before we move on from this, is that not only did he build an altar and bring a sacrifice, but it says he called upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember covering anybody else in Genesis that did this? Not. I'll remind you that when we covered the genealogy, it said people of Seth's descendants began to call upon the name of the Lord during that time. So there's this connection of people that are calling upon the name of the Lord, which leads me to say, what does that mean? Does that mean you just build an altar and bring a sacrifice and 
call out God's name? What does it mean? Well, in another place, it's, it said this. He made proclamation of Yahweh by name. He made proclamation of Yahweh by name. So there's a revelation, and then there's a response, and then there's proclamation of Yahweh's name. This is very similar to something that is in Exodus 33. And I want you to make this connection because we're not going to be in Exodus for a long time. This is where Moses is on the cleft of the rock up on the mountain when God's giving him his law. And this is what Moses says in Exodus 33, 19. Please show me your glory. And he said, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So this is a very interesting spot because Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and I'm going to proclaim before you the excellencies of my name, the Lord. So the proclamation of God's name is something that even God himself does. This is part and included in what worship is all about. So it's important to note here that when Abram is called by Yahweh, God reveals to him, and and Abram offers sacrifice in a glad response. But Yahweh God was worth more than his old life. And this is what I want us to understand. If a God appeared to you and told you to leave everything that you've known and followed him, and you decided the next word, so you left, that obviously means that you trust him, that you believe the promises he gave you are worth more than your life, right? A lot of us hold, hold on to a lot of things that are valuable in our life. If someone appeared to us and said, follow me and go and do these things and give all this stuff up, you would have to stand a reason that you recognize that he is worth more than everything that you're leaving behind. Do you see that? We'd have to see that Abram sees that. This is the first time that we see this. And this glad response is what we would call an act of worship. Now, the word worship, because this is what I kind of want us to gather around. This is the topic that I decided to try to look into. The very first time the English word is seen is in Genesis 22, and we're not even there yet. We're in Genesis 12. But in Genesis 22, 5 is the part whenever Abram has been told by God to bring a sacrifice, right? But this time the sacrifice was his very own son. And so as Abram is getting ready to take his son, it says on the third day, Abram lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again. So this is the first time that the English word worship shows up in the text. But it's not the first first time that the Hebrew word for worship shows up. That's in a couple chapters before that in Genesis 18. And that's when it says, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So this idea of worship, this idea of what it means to worship is first seen in English in Genesis 22. But we actually see the word in Genesis 18 when he bowed himself to the earth. So what we can understand from Genesis, though we don't know anything about worship so far, if this was the very first book that we've seen, we see that there is a God whose love 
It's personal. We can know him, but he's worthy of our worship. And we start to see examples of people bringing sacrifices to him. And Abram is one of those. But it all comes out of the same heart condition as what the physical act is. And the physical act is a physical bowing down to the earth. So when used in scripture, there's two words that I want us to understand are used for worship. And we're going to cover these next week. We're not going to talk about them today, but they, they mean this. One of them means service or labor. That's what worship means is service. But then the other word that's used is a bowing down, bending the knee or paying honor. Bowing down, bending the knee, paying honor. Today, though, we simply want to get an overview of what lies at the heart of all of worship. We don't want to get down into what word is used where and what it means. We want to see what lies at the heart of all worship. And for that, we have to go to John chapter 4. And this is going to kind of be the thesis that kind of ties everything together for me. Because if we see already a pattern of Cain and Abel bringing sacrifices, and one of them is acceptable, and yet the other one's not, And at the same time, we see examples of other men that God's calling out responding in worship. We're starting to see that there is such a thing as a glad response that's spontaneous. But at the same time, there's a right and wrong way to do it. But in John 4, this is what Jesus says when he's talking to the woman at the well. There was a woman there and he says, she says this, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming, and it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Think about that. He says the hour's coming, and by the way, is already here, when you're not going to worship on Mount Gerizim or worship in Jerusalem, you're going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he adds this clause, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's seeking true worshipers. So that already tells me there's a right way to worship. There's an acceptable worship. There's also unacceptable worship. And next week, we'll kind of dive into what acceptable worship through Christ looks like. But in your notes, I want us to see something here. We ultimately want to see that there is a connection between true worship and false worship. There is something that lies at the heart of both. In your notes, the literal English rendering is this. Worship or worthship. Attributing worth to something or someone. Giving honor. Attributing worth. So you guys tell me, what does it mean? What does that word worth mean? We hear it all the time. Something has worth. What's another way to say that? Yeah, it has value. It has value. So we want to ultimately see that there is acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. But worship in and of itself is worthship. It's attributing worth. And people attribute worth to various, various things. So people, if you think about this, people do this with uh, anything. You could attribute worth to anything that you find value. You can find it in a sports team. People do this all the time, right? You uh, love that sports team so much that when you're watching them on TV and they finally do something that you want them to do, you might jump up and down, right? There's a natural response that happens when you see this sports team do uh, what it is that you want to do, and you just love them, right? People can do this with 
all kinds of material possessions to where at the loss of a, a material possession, it could drive them into deep depression. This could also be with human relationships. People find worth in objects and they place value in that. And those objects of worth generate a very natural response in the hearts of those people. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody that loves something is guilty of worshiping something, right? But there is definitely a heart attitude behind it. What we value most, I will argue, is what we will worship. So I want to show you this on your notes. All humans are created with a capacity to worship because we were created as worshipers. And what I want us to kind of understand with that word is continuous outpourers. And I'm going to show you where I get this from in a quote that was very helpful for me. The idea is all humans are created with a capacity to worship because we are created as worshipers. There's a quote from a guy named Harold Best who writes in a, in a book called Unceasing Worship. We were created continuously outpouring. Note that I did not say that we were created to be continuous outpourers, nor can I dare imply that we were created to worship. This would suggest that God is an incomplete person who needs for something outside himself and it, it, that completes his sense of himself. It might not even be safe to say that we were created for worship. Because that inference can be drawn that worship is a capacity that can be separated out and eventually regulated to one of several categories. So Harold says, I believe it is strategically important, therefore, to say that we were created continuously outpouring. We were created in that condition at that instant, Amago Dei, which means the image of God. So what this means and what he's saying is that it's not necessarily correct to say that we were created to worship. Because what that might imply is that God was in need of people to be created so that they could worship him. But we were not created to worship as if God needed it. He also says it may not be strategically uh, valuable to say that we were created for worship. Because what that does is it divides it up and makes worship like an area of our life that you can either do or not do. And so we're created for this, even though we live our lives for this. But we want to understand that worship is all of life since we're created in God's image as worshipers. We're always constantly outpouring to something. The key is, what is that something that we're pouring out to? It's either going to be God or it will be something else. So I want to hopefully say that or, or, or pray that all of our eyes would be open so that we could learn to pour out our hearts to God. So in your notes as well, if we weren't created for worship, what in the world were we created for? Why are you even here? It's the age question, right? Philosophers try to answer it all the time. But what I'd like to say, though, is before I give you that in your notes, I want to head back to what Adam says in his notes. He says, why did God create a nation? We want to understand why God creates a people, his people. Let's look and see what he said. He first said to be a human line for the Messiah to come through. Second thing he said, to receive and reveal his revelation. Third, to be a light and a witness to the lost world. But fourth, I want to add, for his own glory and praise. And this, again, is something that's underlining all the other things he said. I'm not adding anything new. But he created his people for his own glory and praise. Listen to what Isaiah 43, 5 through 7 says. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, 
whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then later on in Isaiah 48, he says almost something very similar, 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God creates his people for his own glory and praise. And I'm going to make a connection that because we are still God's people, it's safe to say that we are too are created for God's glory and praise. But we can't quite understand what that means unless we kind of try to take some time to figure out what glory means. Glory is one of those words that I think that we take for granted all the time. It's like love. You know, it's something that's very difficult to, desc- uh, to define. It's best to try to tr- describe it. But even then you have a hard time and people might disagree. Right? It's not like trying to describe a basketball, which you can point to and say, hey, this is orange and it has dots on it. And you can bounce it and throw it through a hoop. And then if somebody who'd never seen one before saw one, they'd recognize it. But to say glory, that's a very, very difficult thing. In fact, I want to just read just a couple of passages here from Ezekiel, the first chapter, because it says God's glory appears to Ezekiel. So if God's glory appealed to Ezekiel, then Ezekiel might have an idea of what God's glory is like. So I'll just read a couple of verses and see if we can figure out what it's like. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness round it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces. Each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. I'll skip down five verses. He's still going. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth besides the living creature, one for each of the four of them. And as for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness. I'll flip the page and go down another 10 verses. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne and in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of the throne was a likeness with a human appearance. Get the idea? Ezekiel is trying to describe God's glory, and he says it looks like something that sort of looks like something that looks like this, sort of. And he's trying to describe God's glory in what he sees, but he's having a very, very difficult time. So I feel very comforted today, recognizing that when I try to look at God's glory and what Scripture says about it, it doesn't quite make a lot of sense to me. And I take comfort in that when Ezekiel saw it firsthand, He had to try to describe it in human ways, but he didn't just say, hey, it looks like a crystal. He said it looks like the likeness of what it looks like in a crystal. It's very confusing, and he just cannot describe it. So the idea is that God's glory is indescribable. This comes from the Westminster Catechism. It says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man, so... You're wondering why you were created. Well, the Westminster Catechism adds this. The chief end of man, the purpose of your creation, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
And there's obviously pastors like John Piper and works of people like Jonathan Edwards who would say that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That the more that we enjoy God, the more that we glorify God. But that's not what we're going to spend our time on today. The idea is that this is the purpose of our creation. God's glory is sometimes described as any physical manifestation of his person or his character. So I want to show you in Exodus 24, it's described, you can just listen, like a consuming fire. It says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So it was something that they could see, and it was like a devouring fire. I don't know what something would have to look like to look like a devouring fire. But it's also revealed in another cloud, but in also in God's provision. Listen to what he says later in Exodus 16. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. Then Moses said to Aaron, I'm sorry. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And at twilight, he said, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So here's two things that are connected to glory. One is a physical thing. They look out, they see God's glory in a cloud, but it's also connected to his provision because he says, in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. Well, what happens in the morning is that God gives them provision. He gives them something to eat. So God's glory is something, again, it's confusing. It's something that they can sometimes see is a physical manifestation of his presence, but it's also beginning to be connected to his character and what he does, an expression of his attributes. This is found definitely in Revelation 4, 8, where the picture of the creatures are around the throne in heaven, creatures that are hard to describe, and they continually cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Later on, it says, they cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, O Lord. God defines his own glory again in that passage in Exodus. When Moses said he's already seen the glory of the Lord in the cloud, he's already seen the glory of the Lord as it's rested on the mountain, it's like a fire that's devouring. And Moses says, please show me your glory. Please show me more. Show me your glory. And he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim my name before you, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock and I'll cover you with my hand. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seen. 
who says, God, show me your glory. I've seen your glory as it's manifested here in the cloud. I've seen your glory as you've appeared to give us the law, but show me more. And he says, you cannot even begin to imagine. If you saw me, you would die. But what I can do is I can show you the afterglow of my glory, which scripture goes on to say was so strong that when he gets off the mountain, Moses' own face is what? It's glowing. Something else we know about God's glory as we're trying to understand what it says, Isaiah 42, 8, he will not give his glory to someone else. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. My glory I will not give to another. So if we're still trying to to wrap our minds around what God's glory is and how it relates to the rest of Mankind will see in Isaiah 42 that ultimately his glory will cover the entire earth. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I know I've been reading lots of different passages that each in itself has context of its own. I'm not trying to pull these passages out to talk about what I want to talk about glory. I'm just trying simply to understand it. What does glory mean? And we see that glory is sometimes seen as something that God shows of himself in a physical way, but sometimes it's connected to his attributes. This is God's glory. So to help you out, because I'm a terrible communicator at that, I've got a couple of quotes, and that's very small, so I'm going to read it to you. This is from John MacArthur. The glory of the Lord is the expression of God's person. It's any manifestation, that's something you can see, any manifestation of God's character, any manifestation of his attributes in the world, In the universe, it is his glory. In other words, the glory is to God what the brightness is to the sun. The glory is to God what wet is to water. The glory is what heat is to fire. In other words, it's the emanation. It's the effulgence. It's the brightness. It's the product of his presence. It is the revelation of himself. Anytime God discloses himself, it is the manifestation of his glory. That's a big quote, and to me it sounds like Ezekiel trying to just describe it. He says it's just kind of like the brightness is to the sun. It's something that proceeds from the source. There's a guy named Thomas Schreiner, and he says this. Glory of God is the beauty, the majesty, and greatness of who he is. Therefore, in all he does, whether in salvation or judgment, the greatness of his being is being demonstrated. So the glory of God, we were created for God's glory. And the glory of God is his beauty, and it's his majesty and his greatness. So how in the world can we be created for his beauty? And I think that that's where Scripture gives us an idea that we are to say, um, sorry, that we are ultimately created for his praise. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 43, it says, The wild beasts will honor me, and the jackals and the ostriches For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. So the word glory obviously has a very complicated meaning, but when we define it in English, it actually has a word to glorify, means to declare, to rejoice proudly in. And this is what he says in Isaiah. He says, these people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise praise. Was that any different in the New Testament to our call? No, because in 1 Peter 2.9, he says this, once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Worthship. If he is what is most worthy and our hearts are open to see his glory, then it will very naturally lead to praise. That's the connection that I'm trying to make. What Abraham did is not something because he's super spiritual. What Abraham did was very natural because he was created as a worshiper. We're created as people to pour out value to things that we find is valuable. He does that towards God. So do other church fathers and those that have gone before us. And Jesus himself ultimately did it perfectly on our behalf. Psalm 113.3 says, Who is like the Lord our God? So praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun, from the very beginning of the day, to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. One more to give you the idea. It says, sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And here's the response. Ascribe. Proclaim to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So here's our first implication. When or if we begin to see God's glory, we will very naturally declare it in our praise. Remember, this is just the heart behind what worship is all about. I'm not looking at the words of how it's used in Scripture to talk about bowing down physically, what it looks like in the New Testament, because Jesus does redefine it. I'm looking at the heart behind it, the worthship, attributing worth to what we value most. If we could catch a glimpse of God's glory, if we could catch a glimpse of why we were created, and we begin to see God for who he is, we will very naturally declare his worth, and it's called praise. We do this, obviously. How do we praise someone that we enjoy? Can we do this with our spouses? Yes, we can praise, we can praise kids when they pass tests in class. We declare praise all the time. We were created as people that do that very naturally. But the idea is to see God as the most valuable and supreme. And it will very naturally, will declare our praise to him. So here's some definitions of worship. Again, we'll take some that other people have said to kind of give you an overarching idea of what it's all about. John Piper says, worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth. So again, this, this is even complicated for me this morning because if you come in here today and you haven't really given much thought to God and his gloriousness and his holiness, then it's hard and difficult sometimes to sing songs to him, right? Because some of the words don't really match up with what our hearts are saying. But then other people like me sometimes too are really good at going through outward motions 
and honoring God with our lips, but then Jesus kind of shows the New Testament. He says, some people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of the beauty of his worth. The only way that we're going to see this is if God opens the eyes of our hearts. The only way that we're going to be able to worship rightly is if God shows us how valuable and supreme he is. When he does that, we will not have to manufacture worship. It will happen. We do this, again, all the time. If we enjoy something, it naturally moves us. I mean, if we see a movie that we really, really like, it moves us to leave and go and tell somebody all about our favorite parts, right? We love it. We enjoy it. And what we enjoy and love, we naturally declare. That's the idea. But if worship is a way of gladly reflecting back to God the radiance of his worth, then we've got to pray that God would open up our eyes. A.W. Tozer says, worship, again, pure adoration, adoring something. We adore what we value. It's pure adoration, the lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of his holy perfection. So again, what Tozer's saying is it's always connected back to God's glory, his attributes, his perfection, his holiness. And this is a guy named Clyde Cranford. He is a mentor to Ryan Tipton. He has since passed away. He wrote a book um, that's a very good book. I forgot the name of it. What's it called? We know? Most, some of us in here have read it. What is it? Yeah, Because We Love Him. Good. And the whole concept behind Because We Love Him is obviously because we find our value in him. He says, worship is the presence of God. It's a spontaneous bowing of both knee and heart in exquisite delight. So in all three of these definitions, whenever I've come to these definitions and I've been looking in scripture and seeing that these guys are spontaneously responding in delight and adoration, that leads me and has led me this week to deep, deep conviction. For you, it may make perfect sense because you've been following God's word, you've been spending a lot of time with him, things are clicking for you spiritually, and worship is a natural overflow of everything. But if you tend to get stuck in the world like sometimes I do, you tend to get your focus shifted off of the one who, who deserves all of our worship, then we, we kind of lose heart of this natural, spontaneous, exquisite delight aspect to worship. So if you're there, I don't want you to panic because there is a way that we can worship God even in our regret that we are not where we should be or where we want to be. And that's where I think that we can see this worship scene in the Psalms. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 40 when it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry and he drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock. So for me, that's a messy, messy situation. He's calling out to God. He's having to wait, but he's in this muck and mire. But God responds to him and puts a new song in his mouth, a song of praise to our God. That's my prayer. When I don't quite feel it, God, make the genuineness of my worship be connected to the reality of seeing you, who you are. Open up the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wondrous things. Here's our implication too. We're almost done. When we place our highest joy in God, I know there's not a lot of room for this. When we place our highest joy in God and place our faith in his promises, we join creation in displaying his beauty and declaring his worth to the world. 
Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. So whether we feel it or not, guess what the stars are doing? Guess what creation's doing? These trees outside that I'm looking at even as I'm teaching you. They're declaring the glory of God. They're declaring his glorious works, his power, his might, his creativity. Creation is screaming and declaring the glory of God. And our role is to enter into that same glory declaring aspect of our life. We're to enter into and with and join creation displaying his beauty and declaring his worth to the world. So I want to bring this really quick back to Abraham, and then we'll wrap it up with some application. Romans 4.20 is something that Adam has already read to us. This is the passage where it talks about Abraham. And here in Romans 4.20 through 22, it says, In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So again, this is the heart of what worship is in the life of Abraham and in Genesis. We're not in the law. We're not talking about what it means to worship God by bringing literal sacrifices of, of, of animals or of incense and going through different rituals. These are things that the law will, will show on paper later on. But the heart behind it is God reveals something about himself and people respond. Well, here in Romans 4, it says that no unbelief made Abraham waver. He grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God. So Abraham was able to worship God here in these early days of not knowing a lot about him because, A, he found, it, found him more valuable than all the other things that he had in his life. His supreme worth caused Abraham to leave everything that he had. Those promises that Adam gave us last week that Scripture showed that God gave to Abraham, he counted them as more, worth, more valuable than all the things that he had. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And it says that in his faith, he gave glory to God. And I don't think that that's a, just a flippant thing that Paul just kind of wrote down because the glory of God was something so commonly talked about in Paul's day like it is today. You could ask anybody, why are we here? Oh, the glory of God. Where all these things are done to the glory of God. It means something. The idea is just what does it mean? And it says that Abraham was able to give glory to God because of his faith. So here's some application. I know things are hard to kind of pull together on such a, a, a broad topic. But application as we're leaving today, even if I'm not doing a very good job communicating it, this is my heart. Application here, the first thing is we must pray for opened eyes to see his glory and behold wondrous things from his word. That's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 18. He says, open up my eyes that I might be able to see wondrous things from your word. Now, I don't think that it's necessary that we pray, God, open up my eyes so that I could see things, see you in a new and fresh way. Because we're not expecting God to come and re specially reveal himself to us when he's given us his word. 
But when we're in his word, we come to know him. We come to see him. We come to see his glory. And in seeing his glory, we will glorify him. We'll reflect that word to everyone around us. But first, it has to be something that happens in our heart. If it doesn't happen in our heart, then we'll be guilty, just like the Pharisees, of honoring God with our lips while our heart is far from him. Secondly, like Abraham, have faith in the revelation we have already received. So we're praying in some sense that God would open our eyes to see him in a new way. But we've got to exercise faith in the sense that he's already given us his word. And Hebrews 1.3 says, uh, says this, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So you want to know what God's glory looks like? Where does this, where does this verse tell us to look? To Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's given us revelation of himself. He gave us the best revelation he could ever give. And that was by becoming a man and showing us firsthand. And it's recorded in scripture and we have it right here. And I'm guilty of this too, but then we just close it and we leave it until next Sunday, right? There are wondrous things to behold in this book. We must pray that God would open our eyes. Even if glory is something that we can't really wrap our mind around and worship is something that sometimes we struggle with, if our eyes are open, it will very naturally happen. And then lastly, pray that Christ would take his place in our hearts, not as in our hearts, in our hearts. That simply means that, like we'll study next week, there's a way that God's glory had been revealed in all creation, but guess what mankind did with that glory in Romans 1? Anybody know what Romans 1 says? They did what with God's glory? There's a word. I heard it. I said it. Exchanged it. They exchanged God's glory to worship and serve created things. And what we'll see in that text is they, ex- they exchanged the most valuable thing in all of the universe to serve something that you carved out of wood, which in itself is in the image of something that was created by God. So you're basically substituting God and all of his glory for a copy of a copy of a copy. And that's unacceptable. And we'll see that there is unacceptable ways that we come to God. But if he would just open our eyes, we would see. So taking his place in our hearts, let me just uh, tell you what I mean by that, and then we'll pray and end. But Christ is supreme, and I want us to know that. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things are created in heaven and earth. He rules and reigns over creation. What I mean by this is that Christ would take that place in our heart because it's very possible that even though he is in that supreme chair and high ruling above all, if he's not that place in our heart, then our lives will live reflecting that. And it's possible for us to serve and worship other things. People do it all the time. And so we want to kind of take some time next week to kind of figure that out. So I know in some ways this has been maybe perhaps confusing. And I pray that that it wouldn't be that. I pray that you would take these notes, maybe look at some of the passages. I can post these things on the city. Maybe you can see and describe things in a way that I may not be able to do because it's not necessarily my gift. But the idea is this. If we want to worship God, it definitely is not just coming and singing songs. 
It is not singing songs on a Sunday. It includes that. But the New Testament says it's opened up to a realm of endless possibilities because Christ has completely and perfectly worshiped God how he was deserving of being worshiped. He's completed that for us. And so now it says, instead of bringing sacrifices of animals, we're to bring, like Hebrews says, sacrifice of praise on our lips. So if that's the goal of creation is God's glory, and God's people are created for that glory, then we've got to have open eyes and open hearts. And that's something that Sarah said to me just the other day when I was talking to her about, I just don't see it. I just can't feel it sometimes. She says, why don't you just ask? And in some ways, that sounds too simple, you know, too simple just to come to God like a child and look up at him and ask him, open up our eyes. But I think that's the exact way that we need to do it. We need to come as kids. It reminded me that as I was studying this, Callie came up to me. She's our one-and-a-half-year-old. She came with a book, totally disregarded what I was doing, just come up and climbed in my lap and opened up the word and just, or opened up the book and pointed to it and looked up at me almost like, Read this to me. And there's times that Macy will bring a book, and I'm like, you can read it. And she's like, I don't understand the words. I don't get the words. Show me the words. And I, and I stopped in the middle of my study and was like, man, that is the heart behind what I want, to be able to approach God and say, God, I can't understand this without you. And I'm not, I'm not coming to you interrupting you. I'm coming to you to crawl in your lap, to ask that you would open up your word, open up my eyes to see you for who you are. Because when that happens, I'll naturally respond. And maybe sometimes it'll be a response of tears. Maybe sometimes it'll be a response of song. Maybe sometimes it'll be a response of, of physically serving someone else. Worship is all of life. And that's what I want us to see is that worship is everything. But God's glory is the goal of creation. So let's pray. Father, I come to you, God, and Lord, I... We're talking about something that's so vast that my head, even up here, is, is struggling to wrap my mind around. God, and you know that that's not because of a lack of looking into it. It's because of the complexity of who you are in all of your goodness. God, as First Peter says, you've called us out of darkness into light that we might be able to proclaim your excellencies to those around us. God, help us to remember that proclaiming those excellencies start with understanding what Christ has accomplished. Though we may not understand what your glory looks like, and though people in the Scripture have a hard time describing it when they do see it, help us to remember Jesus this morning. Help us remember that Hebrews says, He is the radiance of your glory. Everything that you wanted to reveal, the, the physical manifestation of all of your beauty, the physical manifestation of all of your excellencies, it was shown in the person of Jesus. And Jesus' life and teachings have been recorded for us in the Bible. God, please open up our eyes to behold wondrous things of your word. Open up our eyes like that song says, that we may see you, to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. God, we pray ultimately as well that you would help us to have faith like Abraham had faith, in what you've revealed now, and see that that is also how we can worship you. We worship by having faith in what you've responded and shown. And then lastly, God, I would pray that you would remove idols from our hearts, remove things that we place value and worth in that is not worthy of that. I think that's why Scripture says they're worthless 
substitutes, the worthless idols of men. They have no value, but we spend our time giving value to things that are in and of themselves invaluable. So God exposed the sin in our hearts about where we give glory to things in our lives, whether it's people or objects or possessions or bands, whatever it is, God, help us to realize that you are deserving of first place in our heart because you are first place in the universe. God, may you be glorified in our response to you this morning. May, may our taking of this subject and dwelling on it this week be a response of worship to you. Think about how we can declare your beauty others around us. Help us to see, God, that this is definitely not something that we're to do out of duty because Christians are supposed to do it. We're to do it as a spontaneous response, something that just overflows. God, again, that comes with opened eyes. God, we trust you this morning, recognizing that you are not like human fathers. You are a heavenly father that knows how to give good gifts to his kids. And Above all, you're hearing us pray that you would open up our eyes so we would see you and respond to you the way that you deserve. And I think that that's definitely something you want to happen in our hearts. So help help us to leave here this morning with faith that you will do what we ask. But if it doesn't come today, help us to, like Psalm says, to wait patiently for you until you come, incline your ear and turn to us, put our feet on a rock, set a new song, in our mouth, a song of praise to our God where many will see and hear their trust. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.